We come again this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Matthew 27, and it is my joy to open up the Word of God to you, minister it to you. May I remind you while you're turning there that it is the responsibility of the preacher to make sure that you understand precisely the meaning and the message of the text. I have to make it clear enough to you that you know what you're rejecting if you choose to do that. And likewise, clear enough to you that you will know how to apply it to your life. And frankly, and I hope you hear this with kindness, it matters little to me whether it makes you feel good or not. My job, again, is to give you the meaning and the message of the text, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to do what He will in your heart with His Word. You have to be able to hear it and say, yes, I will obey what God has said, or no, I understand what God has said, but I choose not to obey that. So this morning we come to a very grim passage of Scripture as we read about what I would like to call the insanity of sin. Follow along, beginning in verse 1, Matthew 27. Now, when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed and he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they counseled together, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Before we look closely at this text, think with me for a moment. How many times have you asked the question, why would somebody do such a thing? I mean, think about it. Why would somebody think such a thing? We've all said that. We've all heard that before. I think of many examples. People will say, for example, there is no God. They will believe in the theory of evolution. They will actually believe that no one plus nothing equals everything. And when I hear that, I have to say, 
How can anybody possibly believe that? Or, as I heard somebody say the other day, talking about my horses, if you know anything about horses, they have what's called a chestnut in their inner legs. It looks like a scaly, callous type of a thing. It's called a chestnut. And somebody indicated to me that, yeah, they believe that that is the remains of a toenail that existed on this animal from millions of years ago. And I think, how can anybody possibly believe that? How can anybody possibly believe that we have descended from apes? And if that's the case, why do we still have apes? How can people possibly believe in reincarnation? How can people possibly die for the cause of Allah and believe that they're going to go to a place and have a harem of virgins? How can people believe these things? How can people be that naive? Or how can people do such things? Like, I think of playing the lottery. How can you possibly do that? A cruel tax on the ignorant and the poor. Have you ever watched the television and you see a person running from the police in their car? And what goes through your mind is, why would anybody do that? They know they're going to get caught. Why would anybody kill themselves with drug abuse? Why would people beat their wives or sometimes wives beating their husbands or their children? Why would pedophiles molest a child and then kill the child? How, how could anybody do such a thing? How can you explain the, the physical and the emotional atrocities of homosexuality and the growing acceptance of it? How can anybody rape someone or murder someone? How could suicide bombers blow up innocent people in the name of religion? How can people possibly commit suicide. It makes no rational sense. But it does make sense to an irrational mind that has been deceived by the uncanny power of sin. The Word of God tells us in 1 John 3 and verse 4 that sin is lawlessness. It is a violation of God's moral order. And also in 1 John 5.17, that all unrighteousness is sin. The Word of God tells us that sin comes from the heart. That it is the fruit of lust. That it is rebellion against God. That it is deceitful. It is defiling. It is often secret where nobody can see. It hardens the heart. It's a reproach to heaven. And sin is an abomination to God. And even as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so too sin disguises itself as appropriate for every occasion. Sin promises pleasure, but it yields despair. Sin is the justification of wickedness. Sin is the rationalization of insanity. Andrew Murray said it very well, and I quote, One great power of sin 
is that it blinds men so that they do not recognize its true character. We can go to the Word of God and look, for example, in Romans 1, and we see the wrath of divine abandonment, where God has revealed this wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Literally, that text tells us that every man, woman, and child knows that God exists. God has made Himself evident to them through reason and through conscience. But that text says that they refuse to honor Him as God or give thanks. And they become futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. It's bad enough to be a fool in rebellion to God, but it's even worse to flounder around in the darkness of a fool's paradise, being deceived by sin and ultimately leading a life that leads to despair. The result of that, according to Romans 1, is that God gives people over ultimately to a depraved mind, literally a worthless mind. A mind that has no capacity to live righteously, to do honorably. A life, literally, and a mind that is debased. One that conceives of unimaginable actions and even enjoys doing them. In fact, in that text, the terms gives them over was a judicial term that was used to describe a prisoner that was being handed over to an executioner. And that text says that people are given over because of their refusal to believe in God and to thank Him, and they continue to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Therefore, God gives them over, first of all, to the lusts of their hearts, and then He gives them over to degrading passions, and He uses the example of homosexuality that defiles the moral order the base inversion of God's moral order, and then finally, the people are given over to a depraved mind, the text says, to do those things which are not proper. And then in Romans 1, verse 28, it goes on to list every imaginable category of wickedness. Occasionally, I will surf the channels on television, and I will listen to some of the preposterous claims of faith healers and prosperity teachers. And it's staggering to me to imagine how many millions of people can be so gullible as to buy into the things that they say. They will pack themselves into huge auditoriums and stadiums, believing that somehow these faith healers have the authority from God to heal them. Or others will come to try to learn some spiritual formula from some self-proclaimed guru that will help them learn how to manipulate God so that they can become wealthy. Dear friends, the only way you can explain these types of things is to realize that sin is incredibly powerful. We gain further understanding of how sin can take its root in 2 Timothy 4 beginning in verse 3. You need not turn there. I just want to give you a few thoughts of introduction here. There the Apostle Paul tells us that the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but 
wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The grammar of the text is very important. You may have heard me preach on this before. I'll mention it just briefly. When it says they will turn away their ears from the truth, that is in the active voice, which means that a person will deliberately hear the truth, not like it, and turn and go in a different direction. They will consciously choose to reject the truth. And then, as a result of that, it says, and they will turn aside to myths. And that is in the passive voice. That is not something a person chooses to do, but that's when the myths act upon them and encompass their mind and their heart. And now all of a sudden, like a fool, they are utterly encompassed with things that are not true. And they believe those things as if they were. Well, today's text reveals how sin's powerful ability to deceive people can manifest itself. And we see it in three very chilling scenes of what I would call sheer lunacy. We will see it, first of all, in the insanity of injustice. We will look at the conniving wickedness of the Jewish religious authorities. We will secondly see it in the insanity of suicide, which was Judas's answer to his life's problems. And thirdly, we will see it in the insanity of hypocrisy. As we look at the ridiculous legalism of apostate Judaism, as the leaders of that nation handled the blood money that Judas returned. And by the way, as we look at this rather black and grim narrative, keep in mind that this provides a stark contrast of the beauty and the purity in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ so that against this darkness we can see His glory and His perfection and His innocence. And my prayer is that He will shine even more brightly as a result of our study this morning that He will be able to speak to our hearts and we will be able to behold His majesty and glory. First of all, notice with me the insanity of injustice. Now, you must remember here that it was illegal to conduct a trial privately, especially at night, apart from the temple. But they had done this and they had violated, as we have learned, every other principle of jurisprudence because their hearts were bent on killing Jesus, their long awaited Messiah. And again, may I remind you that sin has the ability to harden the heart of man and sear his conscience. And therefore, he is capable of doing virtually anything. And when he does whatever he chooses to do, as heinous as it may be, he can somehow justify his wickedness with, quote, logical rationalizations. Well, of course, the Jewish leaders knew that they had bent the rules a little bit here with Jesus. But after all, he was a blasphemer and something had to be done. And he was probably a son of Belial, a son of Satan. And so in order to avoid retaliation from the masses that might be sympathetic to Jesus, they had to enlist the help of Rome. 
and basically make them responsible for killing Jesus. They had to paint Jesus as some kind of a rebel, some kind of an insurrectionist. And so the entire council now has to reconvene in the temple court in the morning to give the appearance of legality. That's what's going on here. By the way, this would have been just before sunrise. And according to rabbinic tradition, this would have been a time for their morning prayers. It would have been that time that the rabbis would say, right before you could distinguish blue, the color blue from white, that time when they would offer morning prayers, they would recite their their phylacteries and the Shema, where they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord, and so on. And they would have to finish this before a man could distinguish between the colors of blue and green when the sun would shine forth. But, of course, all of this was set aside because there was something far more important here. And that was to conduct this sham trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. So their injustice became a priority over their personal piety which was a mockery to begin with. And so, under the pretense of holiness and their strict adherence to jurisprudence, they reconvened to consider the evidence and carefully deliberate upon it. So we read in verses 1 and 2, When morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. You see, that was their intent from the beginning. And the text says, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. Well, so much for rabbinical law. Remember, according to their law, the death sentence required members of the court to wait three days before an execution. And they were supposed to fast during that intervening day and ponder their decision and even give more time for further evidence to surface. But, of course, this case was special. Isn't it amazing how we can rationalize our sin? So they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. Now, again, they had already agreed that Jesus deserved the death penalty because he was a blasphemer. But they weren't sure how to kill him. They really feared that the people might rise up against them if they took him out and stoned him. But they also knew that blasphemy was not an offense under Roman law to kill him in any way. And so they appealed to Rome under a different pretense. And that is revealed to us in Luke 23 and verse 2. Here's what they told Pilate. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In other words, Jesus is an insurrectionist. Therefore, Pilate, you are going to be forced to execute him. And because they understood the Roman law, this type of execution would be the most severe, the most cruel, the most ignominious way of all, and that would be the death by crucifixion. Now, as an interesting note, Pilate's reputation was that 
He was Caesar's friend, and he aspired to even loftier levels of political power, as most politicians tend to do. And we know from history that Pontius Pilate governed Judea for ten years under the emperor Tiberius, and he gained a reputation for being cruel to the Samaritans who appealed directly to Caesar, and the emperor had him removed and exiled to Vienna, and after two years in Dauphiny, he killed himself. So here the Sanhedrin, supposedly the most godly of men in in Israel, take counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And in a pure act of insanity, reminiscent of the royal Psalm of David in Psalm 2, verses 2 through 4, they take counsel against the Lord. Here's what Psalm 2 says. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Now, friends, think with me what sheer madness this is to think that mere mortals could conspire against their creator and cause him permanent harm. And what lunacy. To think that somehow they could conceal their wickedness by devising some strategy to make it all appear legal. But such is the insanity of sin. Now, notice what happens next in verses 3 through 5. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse And returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. In other words, what they said to him is, So? (laughs) What's your point? As we would say here in our southern vernacular, Here's a quarter, call someone who cares. That was the attitude. So what does he do? He throws the pieces of silver into the sanctuary. Interesting, the term for sanctuary here is the one for the Holy of Holies, the place behind the veil, the place where only the priest could go. I find that interesting. Therefore, it would require a priest to enter into that place. And maybe we don't know. This is pure speculation on my part. But maybe Judas was thinking, You guys are as wicked as I am. I'm going to throw this in there. And if you go in there being unclean, maybe God will kill you. Who knows what all he was thinking. But certainly it forced them to repossess the money. And then we read in the text that he departed and went away and hanged himself. So first we see the insanity of injustice against God And then secondly, now we look at the insanity of suicide. Now, folks, please understand. The orangutans are running the zoo here. Think of the characters in this scene. First of all, you've got the Sanhedrin. And I think in order for you to really visualize what these men looked like, maybe you can think about the ridiculous garb of the Roman Catholic hierarchy, the popes, the cardinals, the bishops, and so on. Here you have basically, as I would see it, obese hypocrites 
running around in ostentatious robes and long tassels with funny little hats and these large phylacteries coming off their forehead to show everyone how godly they are. Madmen trying to kill a man who they know is God. They're unable to find any legitimate witness against him. They've witnessed his power over sin, over Satan, over demons, over disease, over nature. They've even seen him raise the dead. And folks, think about it. Hours earlier, literally hours earlier, when they went to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ, they were utterly flattened on their backs when he declared to them his covenant name, I am. And then Peter whacks off the ear of Malchus and they watch Jesus pick up the ear and reattach it to him. And they're wanting to kill this man? Doesn't that seem a bit strange to you? Think about Judas, the other character in the scene. Talk about insanity. Here you have the most wicked man that has ever lived. The man who had the unimaginable privilege of walking with the Son of God for three years. Think what that would have been like. A man who witnessed countless miracles. The recipient of the Savior's love and infinite wisdom. And he knew that indeed Jesus was the Son of God. And yet, he tries to deceive his omniscient creator. God who knows everything, he's trying to trick him by cleverly concealing his true motives, which were basically to cash in on the kingdom once the king established himself on the throne. And then finally he gets disillusioned with God. And then in an act of unparalleled treachery, And greed, he sells his soul for 30 pieces of silver. And if that isn't enough, he betrays the Lord with a kiss. And then, tormented by devastating guilt, one would think that he would go to Jesus and beg for forgiveness and receive it instantly. But instead, he goes back to the orangutans running the zoo. Men who he knew were as evil as he was. And what does he do? He confesses his sin to them. The sin of betraying innocent blood. In effect, asking them for forgiveness. And of course, they couldn't care less about it. They couldn't care less about him. So he throws his money into the Holy of Holies and he walks out and he hangs himself. By the way, folks, it's going to get worse. I mean, this is truly the funny farm. This is preposterous. This is demented thinking. This is the insanity of sin. So Judas is able now to see what's happening to Jesus in the courtyard. He's visually now witnessing the vicious abuse against the one that he had claimed to follow. And in verse 3, we see that he felt remorse. I dwelt upon this passage for a long time. It's really amazing to me to think that here 
even as hard-hearted as he was, a man now possessed by Satan, the man that Jesus called a devil in John 6.70, now this man recognizes the heinousness of his deed. It shows you the purity of Christ, does it not? And his conscience now causes him to experience the weight of, of regret and, and the distress over what he had done. Not only did he reject the exceedingly obvious truth of the gospel of Christ, but he literally conspired to kill and betray the Lamb of God. Now, I want you to understand something here. Because many people have gotten this wrong. I know in the King James Version, it indicates that Judas repented himself. And some people will say, well, isn't it great? Judas got saved. No, he didn't get saved. Dear, front, dear folks, this isn't that kind of repentance. In the original language, he did not use the term metanoeo, which denotes an about face which denotes a change in one's mind and a change in direction in a person's will, denoting a, a, a new commitment to move in a radically different direction. Instead, Matthew uses the term metamelami, which denotes merely an emotional sorrow, um, an experience of, of regret, experiential distress, but without a decisive and deliberate change of mind and direction. Now, sometimes, by the way, God will use this kind of emotional sorrow to bring about genuine repentance. But dear friends, God had nothing to do with what Judas was feeling. Judas's sorrow was the worldly sorrow mentioned in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. That leads to overwhelming guilt, desperation, despair, and ultimately death. Had he been genuinely repentant, the stuff of saving faith, what would he have done? He would have sought forgiveness from the Savior. And by the power of divine grace, his character and his conduct would have turned and gone in a new direction. He would have become a new creation in Christ. He would have turned from selfishness to selflessness. He would have turned from, from greed to godliness, from hypocrisy to humility. He would have turned from despair to hope, from sorrow to joy. Folks, that is the stuff of genuine saving faith. So, like so many people who are stung with remorse over some wickedness, Judas tries in vain to find relief. I was thinking that perhaps he even remembered the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 27, verse 25. We read, Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. So Judas returns to the chief priests and elders and admits what they already knew to be true. Verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? <laughs> See to that yourself. Dear friends, might I say here that sinners will never find sympathy nor remedy for their sins from another sinner. You will only find a remedy for your sin when you go to the Savior and ask for forgiveness. And therein is the cleansing. 
Only God can forgive. Only God can cleanse. Only God can restore and comfort. You know, it's tragic when you look at people who live their whole lives in rebellion to God. People who reject the gospel. They live their life solely for themselves. And when their life is all over, and I've been there so many times in hospital rooms, on deathbeds and, and, and funeral services, you look back over their life and all you see is a trail of broken relationships. You see a trail of broken marriages, many times wounded or maybe even abused children. Their life never counted for anything eternal. They just lived for themselves. They never lived for the glory of God. Their life was nothing but one long sequence of wasted opportunities. They wasted all of their time, all of their energy, all of their money on the fleeting pleasures of life. And often in the very last years of their life, they are filled like Judas with remorse and emotional regret. But folks, that will not accomplish anything. Unless that regret turns to genuine repentance. And sadly, most people still refuse to repent. And that's why many commit suicide. For them, that's the only way out. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, annually 800,000 Americans attempt to kill themselves every year. Approximately 31,000 people per year do so in the United States. That's 87 people Per day, one every 17 minutes. Eleven youth kill themselves per day and 15 elderly people per day. By the way, the youth rates have increased some 200% from the 1950s to the late 1970s and have remained relatively stable since then with only a slight increase. But you know, if I can digress for a moment, that shouldn't surprise us any because after all, Parents of that generation have been told that it's cruel to spank your children. It's cruel to discipline them in ways that the Bible would prescribe. Our, our children from childhood have been told that they are the products of a random universe, that they have evolved from apes, that there is no God. They've been told if it feels good, do it, that it's okay to live for yourself, that authority is bad, that God is dead, that the Bible is full of myths, that Christianity is oppressive. And they have been presented Hollywood actors and rock stars and overpaid prima donna athletes as their role models. The young men have been given condoms in the schools and they have been taught that it's okay and appropriate to save the whales but kill the babies. What do you expect? Dear friends, I would... I would hasten to add that I believe with every generation we are producing a more virulent strain of narcissistic barbarians that only live for themselves, not to the glory of God. If you don't believe me, you turn on the television and you look at the type of music videos that are feeding their minds and the things that they love. If that's all I had to live for, I think I would kill myself as well. Beloved, that is the insanity of sin. According to the American Association of Suicidology, 
The motives for suicide are as follows. To seek help, to escape from an intolerable situation, to get relief from a terrible state of mind, to try to influence some particular person, to show how much they loved someone, to make things easier for others, to make people feel sorry for them, to make people understand how desperate they were feeling, to find out whether they are really loved, fear of loss of control, and a desire to die. Dear friends, how sad. How sad to... To know the hope that is found in Christ Jesus. And to know that that hope could have been theirs. To know that the Lord Jesus Christ offers a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And that in Him we don't have to be anxious for anything. But rather, with prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, we can let our requests be made known to Him. And what will He do? He will give us a supernatural peace that defies human understanding. This is the glorious concept of the Gospel. How sad to see people ignore the God-given idiot light that is placed within all of us. You know what an idiot light is. That's what we call it on the cars. When the light comes on and it says, you know, check engine soon. You know, we don't just keep on driving and say, I don't know what that means, you know. You're not going to go long and something's going to blow up. Well, friends, that's what we have in us. It's called emotions. And one of the key idiot lights that we have within us is the feeling of guilt. I remember when I was studying psychology, one of the things that they kept telling me is that we've got to learn to help people deal with their guilt, to somehow overcome their guilt. And I remember in those days I was agonizing because I kept thinking, well, you know what? The reason why people feel guilty is because they are. And when people understand their guilt... They can understand that that is their conscience saying, you are in spiritual trouble. If you keep going in that direction, you're going to have to deal with God. You need to turn and go in this direction. But this is the insanity of sin. And this leads very often to the insanity of suicide. So thinking that somehow suicide would alleviate his guilt, Judas goes out and he hangs himself. John MacArthur had an interesting statement. In light of this, he said, and I quote, death does not relieve guilt. It makes it permanent and intensified beyond comprehension. As Jesus repeatedly declared, hell is a place of eternal torment, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Judas today cries out in the eternal pain of his undiminished guilt. End quote. By the way, it's fascinating. You can read in Acts 1 and verse 18 that when Judas went out to hang himself, evidently he did so over a cliff and on some kind of a weak limb because when he hung himself, the text says that he fell and burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. What a chilling image reminding us of the tragic end of a life of wasted opportunity and the insanity of sin. Finally, we see the insanity of hypocrisy. Look at verses 6 through 10 once again. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they counseled together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Isn't this interesting? 
And again, now we're back to the zoo here. We're back to the insane asylum of sin. Here again, we see things that make no sense whatsoever. Now think about this. Despite their inconceivable evil against the Lord Jesus Christ, they have the audacity to be apprehensive about how they're going to handle the money because they don't want to offend God. Isn't that crazy? This is the blood money that Judas has returned. This is kind of what was going on in their mind. You know, we don't want to offend God here. We, we want to be concerned about how He would have us deal with, with this money. Now, now we, we can't put it in, in the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. Well, yeah, you know, it was the money we gave them. But after all, we've we got to remember here that that was justified because this man was a serious blasphemer. We had to get rid of him. And at that moment, their conscience would accuse them and say, yeah, the reason you got rid of of him is because you love darkness rather than light. So these religionists simply, at this point, ignore their conscience, what little they have. I'm reminded of the text that says that they are those who strain at a gnat and yet they swallow a camel. Folks, this is the insanity of hypocrisy. Thinking that we can fool God So they devise a plan to buy a burial place for strangers. It's a place called the Potter's Field. This was probably a field that was a worthless piece of ground. The potters probably went there to dig out their clay to craft their wares. I would imagine, and again, this is speculation on my part, but it was probably already filled with a lot of holes. Therefore, it would be cheaper to bury people. These guys aren't going to spend much money. So the logic is simply this. If we buy this piece of property where we can bury the indigent and and the homeless people, and as the text says, the strangers, which, by the way, was a, a Jewish euphemism for Gentiles. If we do this, maybe it will endear the public to us. That's their thinking. It's typical of the mindset of most corrupt politicians who are constantly trying to impress others so that they can buy a vote. So this is what they did. And then it says, for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. By the way, as a footnote, another fascinating illustration of the insanity of legalism. We read in John 18, 28, that when they led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and it was early. Now listen to this. And They themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Isn't that crazy? They're delivering Jesus now. Earlier, this is when that that occurred. But they didn't dare go in there because they didn't want to defile themselves. How ironic. You know, here again, these hypocrites are fastidiously trying to avoid becoming ceremonially unclean. And yet, they are are utterly oblivious to the infinitely greater moral defilement defilement due to the evils that they are perpetrating against Jesus, which will undoubtedly arouse the wrath of His Father, Almighty God. I mean, this is truly insane. Well, back to the field of blood. Here, these deceitful hypocrites go to great lengths to cover their crime. And yet, I find it interesting... In so doing, they unwittingly erect a monument to their treachery as well as to the innocence of Jesus, a place called the field of blood. 
And then we read in verses 9 and 10 where Matthew quotes a text in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, which, by the way, it says here on verse 9, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And then he quotes something out of Zechariah. Some people are going to be quick to say, ah, see, there's a mistake in the Bible. No, it's not either. They don't understand. And let me explain it to you briefly. Um, the Jews called the prophets the... Well, let, let me back up. There were three divisions uh, in the Old Testament, according to the Jews. There was the law. There was, were the writings, or sometimes it was called the Psalms, and then there were the prophets. And what the Jews called the prophets is really the section called Jeremiah. Because in their system of thinking in that day, Jeremiah was the first book of the prophets. And so since that was the case, they often described the whole section of the prophets by using the term Jeremiah. And that would have included the prophecy of Zechariah. So we read here in verse 9 and 10, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose, whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Friends, here is another amazing fulfillment of prophecy, proving again that God is the sovereign ruler over His creation. That nothing happens apart from His perfect plan to glorify Himself. Even the death of the world's greatest traitor, a man insane with sin. And I close this morning with a simple and humble application to you. If you have heard and understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if you're here today, you've heard that, and you have never taken that first step of faith to ask Him to forgive you your sins, a willingness to deny yourself and follow Him to make Him the Lord of your life, if you have never done that, you are a fool living in the insanity of sin. You are like Judas and the religious hypocrites who denied the truth, they hated the truth. They tried to destroy the truth. And dear friends, please hear me. You, like them, will come to the end of life someday and experience the same kind of remorse but without repentance. Because if you continue on this path, God will give you over to the consequences of your sins. And you will eternally regret your insanity. May God have mercy on those who still refuse His grace. Those who frolic in the insanity of their iniquities. And may they repent before it is too late. Father, we humble ourselves before You as Your people, rejoicing in the glory and the purity and the innocence, the majesty and the excellency of Christ. And we see it even more clearly against the backdrop of all of this darkness, all of this wickedness. Lord, I pray that the truths of Your Word will penetrate each heart that is within the sound of my voice this day. May sinners be converted. 
And may saints grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.